When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a leadership development podcast told through the lens of Star Trek. And now here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome everyone and thank you for joining me today. We're going to learn how to apply a powerful performance review and feedback model that can transform you and your teams while we see Saru's leadership in a crisis situation. Today, we watch Season 1, Episode 5 of Discovery, Choose Your Pain. We pick right up where we left off in the last episode of Discovery. This series moves so fast. Burnham, Burnham is struggling. She knows they're hurting and, and likely killing Ripper to, the, to get the spore drive to work, but, but she just can't convince anyone. So she brings in Dr. Culber. He agrees to run some tests to try and prove out her intuition. We join Captain Lorca in front of a group of admirals. They've started building more spore drives, but they know they need more tardigrades to make them work. They're searching everywhere for them, but, but in the meantime, they're ordering Discovery to stand down. They need to take it easy, as the, the, the Klingons are going to learn about their secret weapon sooner than later, and they're... There's no indication they're going to be able to develop more usable drives anytime soon. After the meeting, Cornwell and Lorca connect. They're old friends. But, but she has a real problem with him conscripting Burnham. To see her avoiding justice does nothing for General Morrell. He stands his ground, though. My ship. My way. What do you think about this? I mean, Admiral Cornwell isn't wrong. In the hundred and 20 or so years of Starfleet, Burnham is the only convicted mutineer. I mean, the only one. That is a really big deal. As we, as we saw back in Context is for Kings, people do not like her. I mean, I mean she she really didn't even like herself at that point. Let's forget for a moment that she's the focal point of a brand new Star Trek series and instead look at what Cornwell knows. Burnham was a talented and skilled Starfleet officer that let her own agenda supersede years of reinforced training resulting in the assault of a superior officer and, arguably, a full-scale war. She is universally disliked and even hated in some circles and is, presumably, serving out a life sentence. Until that is, Lorca pulls her back in the game. If you were in Admiral Cornwell's position... What would you do? What would you say to Lorca? What, what would you tell him to do? Join us. We would be honored if you would join us. In the Starfleet Leadership Academy Facebook group. And, and let's talk about it. Because I don't think that what we saw on screen is what should have happened at all. On a transport shuttle, on his way back to Discovery, a... Klingon, Class D7, battle cruiser identified. Jumps out of warp and abducts them. 
The shuttle pilot is killed, but they know who Lorca is, and he's captured. Cornwell informs Discovery and names Saru as acting captain. The assumption is that if they don't already know about the spore drive, they will soon, so rescue is a critical priority. Saru doesn't skip a beat and immediately starts dishing out orders. Lieutenant Dudmer, set course for the shuttle's last known coordinates, maximum orbit. Lieutenant Olmoshenko, establish search parameters sector by sector. Burnham comes onto the bridge and shares her feelings on what's happening to Ripper. He asks if she has any proof, which she does not, so he just blows her off. I am not finding this information to be helpful in any way. And then... And then he doubles down. There will be no more discussion of the tardigrade until the captain is back safe. Understood? Normally, this is where I dissect this discussion and point out the numerous missed opportunities Saru let slip by. But I don't have to. You see, in a moment of self-awareness, Saru asks the computer for help. This whole scene and its payoff at the end of the episode are awesome. He sets goals, he develops a framework, and he kind of assesses his performance against that framework. We'll take it as it comes up in the episode, but here, here he asks for a list of Starfleet's most decorated captains and what qualities they share that were key to their successes. The computer lists Robert April, Jonathan Archer, Matthew Decker, Philippa Giorgio, and Christopher Pike. Hmm. Three of the five captained Enterprise. Well, four. Four if you count the short time Decker assumed command in the original series episode, The Doomsday Machine. And the computer then listed the following qualities. Bravery, self-sacrifice, intelligence, tactical brilliance, and compassion. Saru then asks the computer to record his performance as acting captain to later be cross-referenced with, uh, with these heroes of Starfleet. Pretty great, right? As the episode continues and Saru makes choices or takes action, let's, let's play the role of the computer and call out when his actions align with one or more of these qualities. Now, he initiates this review near the end of the episode, but it'll be fun for us to do it as it goes along. In the Klingon prison cell, Lorca meets Harry Mudd. My name is Mudd. Harcourt. Fenton Mudd. Harry, for short. He explains he's in the cell because, because of bad timing. <laughs> he, he bought this girl a moon. Hey, Stella! Stella! <laughs> Stella! And fell behind on the payments. The Klingons picked him up, but sounds like it might have been a like a bounty hunter kind of a situation. And then the war broke out, so he's been here for quite a long time. There's another Starfleet officer in the cell, but, but he's in bad shape. I believe the technical term for his condition is out to lunch. A couple Klingons bust into the cell and orders them to choose your pay. Mud points to the beat-up officer, and they proceed to Beat him until he dies. Super, super brutal. Big finishing stomp to end it. Coup de gras! Cover! They drag the body away and leave. Mud explains they regularly allow them to either accept the beating themselves or pass it on to another prisoner. Lorcan notes that Mud appears to be in pretty good shape. 
Mud responds, I'm a survivor. Culber and Burnham go to talk about her concerns with the tardigrade with Stamets. And, and she kicks it off beautifully. Well, kind of. Your spore drive is genius. Beyond genius. Like, who wouldn't want to hear that, right? She is heaping the praise on him. It's great. But, but he knows what's up, and he cuts her right off. I know I'm brilliant. What are you trying to get out of me? That's the thing with just heaping the praise on. Like, we've been conditioned to, to wait for the other shoe to drop. Like, this is nice and great and all, but where is the butt. Part of this is that this is very out of character for her. She's not one to, uh, to butter the bread before making somebody eat it, but it's also about authenticity. You can hear that little sound, that subtle shift in the tempo and the tenor of her voice that says she's just saying this to get what she wants. Praise is awesome and you should give it frequently, but, but mean it when you say it. Don't say what you mean, but mean what you say. And don't attach an anchor to it in the form of a big butt. I like big butt. Just say it and mean it. Culber steps in and says there's cumulative damage to Ripper and that using him just, just isn't sustainable. The Stamets, after, after a full plate of sarcasm, says one of the greatest and most powerful things in all of start, well, no, just one of the greatest and most powerful things, period. Do you want to be right, or do you want to fix this? It's like we talked about in TNG's Up the Long Ladder, when Pulaski didn't argue with Worf, even though he was minimizing and, and was wrong. Here, Stamets puts a stop to bickering and arguing to refocus their energies on the task at hand. I mean, I mean, they were on the verge of a knockout dragout. I am swallowing the urge to set the record straight. But in one masterful phrase, he pointed them at the problem and got them to work solving it. He, he really is brilliant. Back in the prison cell, Lorca finds another Starfleet officer. They're tucked away everywhere. This one's named Ash Tyler. He was captured back at the Battle of the Binary Stars when his ship, the Jaeger, went down. That means he's been in this cell for seven months. Lorca questions how he's survived for so long. Tyler explains, Captain of this ship, she's taking a liking to me. Lorca gently nods his understanding. He starts brainstorming ideas to get a communication out to Starfleet and Discovery. Mud interrupts and starts just downing the Federation. Starfleet arrogance. Have you ever bothered to look out of your spaceships down at the little guys below? The Klingons bust in again, but this time they just grab Lorca and leave. Not a single word spoken. Stamets, Tilly, and Burnham are problem-solving. Found not only in normal space, but in a discrete subspace domain known as the mycelial network. Its fungal roots, aka mycelium, spread across the universe. There's a, well, a DNA swap between Ripper and the mycelial network. They can't use computers to replicate this swap because they just they lack the processing power. They need, they need to have a living integration. So they're on the hunt for a compatible and willing life form. Lorca is strapped into the torture chair. The Klingon captain is familiar to us, right? Oh, it's Laurel, and she speaks outstanding English. Have you ever been tortured, Captain? She's trying to figure out the secret of discovery. She also knows about Lorca's extreme photosensitivity. 
So she pulls a clockwork orange. It was Ludwig van Ninth Symphony, Fourth Movement. And pulls his eyelids open as she blasts super bright light into his face. The Discovery crew have just about narrowed down what system Lorca is likely in. Seeing the spore drive is offline, Saru barges down to engineering. The trio is still problem solving and, and, and just throws himself at them. Should I try to access the classified database at the Daystrom no, Institute? No, cadet. You should not. Stamets says they're working on replacing the tardigrade and that it is a critical and top priority. Burnham explains that humans, so far, are the only match. And because of restrictions on eugenics and, well, ethics, this just isn't an option. She pleads for more time, but Saru bites her head off. I gave you an order. Do you understand? While he's laying into her, comparing her actions to the actions that led to the death of Giorgio and the war, the bridge crew reports they've identified the cruiser holding Lorca. He orders Stamets to prepare the tardigrade for a jump. Tilly, Tilly is in tears as Stamets reluctantly nods his acknowledgement of the order. Okay, it's time for our first check-in on Saru's performance. Let's see, bravery? Nope. Self-sacrifice? No. Intelligence? Afraid not. Tactical brilliance? No way. Compassion? Not even a little bit. Okay, just uh, keeping our eyes on his performance goals, and we'll see you next time when we review Saru's performance. The Klingons return a pained Lorca back into the cell. He's confirmed (laughs) that Mud has been feeding the Klingons intel the whole time. Tyler threatens to choose him the next time they're asked to choose their pain, but Mud counters by telling the story of Lorca's last ship, the Baron. Only one crewman managed to escape. Gabriel Lorca. He's trying to paint Lorca as a, as a coward, but Lorca explains he left the ship and blew it up himself. He did it to save his crew the pain, the humiliation of Klingon capture. Ash Tyler watches him as one watches a hero. Pretty extreme, for sure, but, but I can see how an immediate death could be preferable to the torture, humiliation, and the slow death the Klingons would have offered. So if we use those same qualities to rate Lorca's performance there, that's uh, bravery, self-sacrifice, intelligence, tactical brilliance, and compassion, well, I'd, I'd say he showed them all. I mean, albeit in a, in a violent and a very brutal manner. I mean, you could, you could probably argue the bravery and the self-sacrifice. because Maybe the brave thing to do would have been to stay on the ship as it was destroyed. But I don't know how he destroyed the ship. Maybe, maybe he needed to be in a shuttle or something to handle that. I imagine the sacrifice of living with that decision, the decision to kill your crew, rates the self-sacrifice piece. But intelligence, tactical brilliance, and compassion? Yeah, yeah, I think those are pretty clear. So even, even in a moment of violence and brutality, Lorca is outperforming Saru. I mean, unless you see this differently, if you do, honestly, I would love to hear from you. Speaking of Saru, he's preparing to order the jump. Stamets beams Ripper into the cube, and Saru makes the order. The drive attaches to Ripper, and he is clearly in pain. The jump is successful, 
but Ripper spills out all of its water and enters a state of extreme cryptobiosis by reducing the water content levels of its body to less than 1%. Dr. Kolber says it's not dead, but it's sure close. And Saru just offhandedly responds, Rehydrate it and bring it back. Mr. Reese. When Kolber tries to retort, Saru, Saru sticks his hand in his face to shush him. Talk to the hand because the face don't want to hear it anymore. Wow. And, and he doesn't stop though. Kolber doesn't. He pushes back saying it's been severely hurt. It's damaged. And Saru persists and then tells him. Crack it open if you have to. Kolber plays his whole hand. He says that Ripper is very likely a sentient being. To which Saru responds, yeah, he's just going to go ahead and take full responsibility if it ends up being true. Be ready to force the creature to comply. Colbert says that he will not be a party to murder. And Saru, Saru sticks his hand in his face again and tells Colbert he's not talking to him, but to Stamets. Stamets stares at Saru, pauses, and says, Yes, sir. Okay, it's time once again to check in on Saru's performance. Never mind, I'm, I'm not going to bother. I mean, even if he turns out being right and Ripper is just some dumb animal, nothing he did here is okay. Because, because the, the point I think I left out of all this is that it happened on the bridge in front of everyone. He just completely disregarded and disrespected a senior medical officer and the brains behind the spore drive. Wow. Well, in what may show us more solid leadership lessons, the next scene takes us back to the Klingon cruiser and Lorca's cell. The Klingons bust in and tell them to choose their pain. Mud starts to panic till Tyler steps up. And Tyler says... Choose me, Captain. They put quite a beating on him. When the guard goes for his patented finishing move, a modified standing coup de gras, he dodges. Lorca attacks and they take down the Klingons. Tyler and Lorca leave and Mud follows. There is no we, Mud. You sold us out. They walk out and lock Mud in the cell who screams, You haven't seen the last of Harcourt Fenton Mud! Star Wars style corridor fight ensues. Tyler's hurt and can't continue. Lorca leaves him in a covered spot and says he'll find a way out and come back for him. As he leaves, Lorel rounds the corner and taunts Tyler, who absolutely loses it. He just unloads on her. I have had Lorca returns and takes a shot, but just grazes her. It's enough for them to get to the docking bay, steal a raider, and head out. A couple of other raiders are in pursuit. Discovery is there, watching. Saru analyzes the lead raider and decides to hail it. Lorca confirms it's him, and they beam him and Tyler to the ship. Lorca orders them to jump away. Saru asks Stamets if he has revived the tardigrade, Stamets answers. We are able to jump, Commander. Saru orders it, and they're away to safety. Super, super tense scene. This was really well paced. Owosakun reports that Stamets' life signs are fading. Saru and Tilly rush to engineering. They find him in the cube, on the floor, passed out and bleeding. He injected himself with the tardigrade DNA compound and handled the jump himself. He totally answered Saru's question the way he wanted to, right? Saru confirms he's alive 
and he wakes up. Did we make it? Yes. <laughs> the cameras in this scene are super tight on both Saru and Stamets in uh, in this back and forth. It's it's actually an almost uncomfortable extreme close up. And I've got to say, Saru's makeup is awesome. You're right in his face. He's bathed in white light, and it it looks totally natural. Super well done. But here's the problem with this scene. Well, not the scene, but but with Saru. He is clearly deeply concerned for Stamets. He rushes into that cube and immediately checks on him. This is a level of compassion and even bravery we we just haven't seen from him this entire episode. I say bravery because honestly, who knows what's going on in that cube. The decontamination process is not complete. You'd flood the whole compartment. The door's locked, sir. He could totally be risking his own life to save Stamets. What this demonstrates is leadership without authenticity. He's been trying to be someone he is not this whole time. Instead of aspiring to the qualities the computer laid out for him, he's just pretending to be what he thinks a confident leader would be. Imagine how different this episode would have been if if he allowed even a little of his caring and compassion to show through his acting captain. This is a really great example of the value of authenticity and leadership, and, and we even get more here in the next scene. Saru comes to Burnham's quarters and updates her on Lorca and Stamets. You know, one thing I've really appreciated about Saru is his blatant, almost aggressive honesty. You see, he does have the capability to be a deeply authentic person when he chooses to. And he does that here. He says to Burnham, I am angry at you. Angry because of how much you stole from me. I am deeply jealous. And then he blows it again. He thinks he should have been able to study or serve under Giorgio as her first officer. If I had, I would have been more prepared for today. (sighs) What a cop-out. Nope, I am not letting him get away with pawning his poor performance onto Burnham and other circumstances. It was clear to me in the first episode of this show, of this series, that the trio was Giorgio, Burnham, and Saru. He had plenty of time to learn and to prepare. And on top of that, the, the computer straight up told him what he... Okay, okay. I'm going to chill out for a second. I mean, we have a whole segment of the podcast dedicated to this review, right? Okay. Now, I am not going to let him get away with this, but apparently, apparently Burnham will. You did well. Ugh, facepalm. Like, I'm, I am facepalming right now. I don't... Can you hear that? Can you hear me facepalming? I... You might not be able to, but I totally am. This is, this is just bad. But then she demonstrates two of the qualities Saru has yet to self-sacrifice and compassion. As she gifts Saru with the telescope she got from Giorgio. You should have the privilege to see the universe the way she did. Tilly and Burnham are going to try and save Ripper. The theory is that being free out in space will make it happy and save its life. She dumps some spores on its shell and they eject it into space. It unfolds, kind of appears to sort of smile, and then takes off along the mycelial network. Saru initiates his performance review with the computer and then immediately stops it. I know what I did. Which is great. Self-awareness, though not listed as a quality by the computer, is a critical quality of effective leaders. 
In fact, in our last episode, where we looked at Enterprise, the catwalk, we learned that it's one of the facets of emotional intelligence. So now the real test for Saru will be if he applies his learning or not. The next chance he gets to lead, will he apply what he learned from this experience? Some good news there. We absolutely get some chances to find out in future episodes. Stamets and Culber are in their quarters. This is one of the most impactful scenes in Star Trek to date. Not only are they brushing their teeth with really cool black toothbrushes that apparently don't use messy toothpaste, but we see a gay couple just being a couple. It's not kissy or romantic or sappy. It's just real life. When this episode first aired, I remember the LGBTQ plus community just, just really applauding it for, for normalizing this on TV. It also normalizes what every couple goes through when one is doomed to love a brilliant but reckless maniac who's willing to risk his life for glory. It gets dark for just a second, maybe some foreshadowing. You are in danger. But then it shifts to him describing the awe of seeing the mycelial network. As they walk away from the mirror, the reflection of Stamets remains there, staring until it slowly walks away. It's creepy. Another great installment of Discovery. A lot happens in this episode. We get a glimpse into the dire situation of the war as the admirals are trying to speed production of spore drives. We meet Harry Mudd and Ash Tyler, and Ripper is freed, and there's something about Stamets. They also set up a lot for future episodes in this one. Some we can see now, and others only make sense on a rewatch. In fact, I think that's part of the brilliance of Discovery. It's an entirely different show after you've watched it the first time. It's a lot like Knights of the Old Republic in that way. See, there's a twist in that game, and that twist is mind-blowing. I can still remember intimate details about the moment I first experienced that twist. Every time you play the game afterwards, it's got a different feel. That's totally this season of Discovery. But we also know there's something between Tyler and Laurel. Mud has vowed revenge, and now, apparently, Stamets is the mycelial navigator. And as much as Lorca has failed us as a leader so far, <laughs> he sure shows up as a badass in this one. I mean, Laurel hits him with the lights, and, and based on the gear he was strapped into, who, who knows what else? And he just shakes it off. <laughs> I really enjoy his character. Oh, and guess what? The bridge crew have names. There was some stuff with Detmer, Owosakun, Reese, and Arium in this one. Five episodes in, and I think we know most of their names now. <laughs> Not bad, I suppose. And it has to be said, Rain Wilson is amazing as Harry Mudd. Great look, great attitude. A lot Darker than the mud played by Roger C. Carmel in the original and the animated series. Harry Mudd. Incorrect. Harcourt Fenton Mudd. But given the tone of discovery, mm, appropriate. It's a great episode that leaves you wanting more. What's not to love? Command codes verified. It's almost like this episode was custom built for this podcast. We start off with Saru setting leadership and management performance expectations for himself. Then we have the opportunity to assess his performance in real time 
and finally a chance to reflect on his performance. So we're going to spend a moment reflecting on that, but then we'll look at practical ways you can apply this same framework for yourself and for your teams. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Initiating Performance Review, Acting Captain Saru. Saru started by asking who the most decorated captains in Starfleet were. With the organization being just over 100 years old at this point, you can imagine there'd be a wealth of individuals to choose from. But, with the exception of Jonathan Archer, everybody's a contemporary of Saru's. I bring this point up because it poses both a unique challenge and a unique opportunity for him. The challenge is that many of these captains are still forging their paths, still writing their stories. Pike, for example, is about to get his own series set after the time of this episode. This is challenging because it can really be helpful to look at the totality of someone's contributions. Take Archer as an example. Now, as of the time this podcast episode is released, we've only looked at four episodes of Enterprise. So if you're watching along with us and haven't seen all of Enterprise yet, take this as your spoiler alert. But Archer goes on to, no, I'm, I'm serious. This is, this is a pretty huge spoiler. So if you haven't watched this, you don't want it ruined for you. Go ahead and skip ahead 15 seconds now. But Archer goes on to help found the Federation and becomes president of the Federation in 2184, just 72 years before this episode of Discovery. So your view of him and the lessons you can learn would be very different if you were a contemporary of his as compared to Saru, who can look back on his entire career. The opportunity here is networking. I mean, he's serving in the same organization at the same time as Pike, Decker, and April. Write him a letter. Set up a meeting. Do something. He complains at the end of the episode for missing out on learning from Giorgio, but I, I, I still think that's just totally ridiculous. But if he makes that same mistake with the three people still serving, well, shame on him. He then asks what the qualities are that most contributed to these captains' successes. Bravery, self-sacrifice, intelligence, tactical brilliance, compassion. So I'm not going to beat a dead horse or a defeated Saru here. He objectively failed on all points. He failed to demonstrate any of these qualities until the very end of the episode. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. So you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. If I were using this as the framework for Saru's performance appraisal, at best, he would rate a needs improvement. His performance aside, his approach was brilliant. Here's what you can do right now today to use this as a constructive framework for your own performance and even that of your team. Just, just follow his example. Think of three to five people that exemplify or at least consistently demonstrate the qualities you want. Now, these don't have to be leadership qualities. Like maybe you're developing sales skills for your team or, or if you're an architect, for example, who, who are incredible architects you can look up to? Howard Rourke? Peter Keating. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Sorry. But, but in all seriousness, whatever field you're looking to grow and develop in, 
identify three to five standouts, then list their qualities, their skills, their abilities, and identify the top four or five of those. Are you familiar with a Pareto chart? (laughs) I love Pareto charts. They're based on the Pareto principle, which you might know as the uh, the 80-20 rule. This is used in Lean and Six Sigma to, well, to, to prioritize problem-solving efforts. I'm, I'm dramatically oversimplifying here, but the theory, with, with an alarming amount of statistical and historical evidence to support it, is that 80% of your problems can be solved by tackling 20% of the issues. So there's a little homework for you if this is all new to you. Study up on the Pareto Principle and how to use Pareto charts. In our context today, though, you can use a Pareto chart to determine the top four or five qualities of the people you identified. List the qualities out by person and note how many of them are shared across the five people. The more shared they are, the higher up the list they go. Okay, you with me so far? At this point, you should have a list of about five people that are standouts in your area of development and you've identified about five qualities they share that have most contributed to their success. Now, go out there and do your thing. But set up periodic check-ins where you assess your performance. Where are you doing well? Where do you need to improve? The rhythm of these check-ins will vary from person to person, but in my experience, the check-ins will range based on how much of a stretch these qualities are. If you're already fairly competent in the area and are working to sharpen yourself and improve, maybe quarterly is a good tempo. If this is new to you, though, you might need to assess bi-weekly or or even every week. Now, if you want to supercharge this approach, (laughs) enroll your coach, a mentor, or your supervisor into it. Have someone to help guide you through the execution and, and, and then someone who you can discuss your performance with. If you're using this with your team, that person should most likely be you. And if it's not you, it should be someone that you know and trust. You can also use a powerful tool that Jay Elise Keith talks about in her book, Where the Action Is. You can find a link to this book in the reading list page at jeffaken.com. She recommends a tool called an action review. These are exactly what they sound like. After an action is taken, you meet up with those involved and review it. These are very commonplace in the military, where they call them after-action reviews. They actually also hold before-action reviews to ensure everyone knows the plan prior to execution. But an action review meeting begins with an objective review of the facts, followed by discussion on observations and learnings. These can be used to determine an immediate improvement plan. Plus, they offer incredible insights since they should be held right after the action is taken. So in this episode, when we paused to check in on Saru's performance, those would be ideal moments for an action review meeting. If you work in an organization that does annual performance reviews, I imagine you think of them as being about as valuable as that little piece of plastic that comes with cheese and cracker packs. But if you roll this framework we just developed into that annual review process, they're going to become invaluable. They're going to become a meaningful record of your progress or your teams and can clearly outline performance goals over the next year. In fact, that review time is a great opportunity to refresh your lists. 
Is it time to swap out one or more of your standouts? Is it time to move down your Pareto chart and start focusing in on new skills and qualities? In an attempt to do the best he possibly could, Saru laid out a powerful and honestly simple framework for you and your teams to boldly go where you've been working so hard to get to. How would you have handled that interaction with Captain Lorca if you were Admiral Cornwell? Have you had a highly skilled person on your team that's just toxic to your culture? How did you handle it? Or, even more complex, have you ever had a Burnham on your team? Someone that is wildly highly skilled, but is perceived by others to be toxic. Let's talk about it. Join us in the Starfleet Leadership Academy Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. And share your thoughts, share your stories. And you can always hit me up on social media. We're on Twitter, at SFLA Podcast. And you can follow me just about everywhere else, at Jeff T. Aiken. Jeff, T, as in tactical brilliance, A-K-I-N. Computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. Season 2, Episode 3 of The Next Generation, (laughs) our first holodeck episode. Elementary, dear Data. This kicks off a fun, short arc through TNG set in the world of Sherlock Holmes. And I really appreciate all of your support. Visit jeffaken.com to join our mailing list, check out our blog posts, and peruse my reading list for great books like Where the Action Is. And until then, Ex Astra Scientia! Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.